continue our study here of George Mueller's life, and uh, specifically chapters 9 and 10. And so, uh, the first little section here is, uh, he says, one point I had never prayed about, however, uh, this is in connection with the orphan house that he was establishing, was for the Lord to send more children. I took it for granted that there would be plenty of applications. The appointed time came and no applications were being made. This circumstance led me to bow low before my God in prayer and to examine the motives of my heart once more. I could still say that His glory was my chief aim, that others might see it as not a vain thing to trust in the living God. Continued in prayer, I was at last able to say from my heart that I would rejoice in God being glorified in this matter, even if it meant bringing the whole plan to nothing. I then asked Him heartily to send applications. The very next day, the first application was made, and within a short time, 43 more were received. So any quick observations of things that we notice from this, um, this, these couple of paragraphs here? And maybe the question, why should we pray about everything, even things that seem to be givens or taken for granted? There's a handout on the back there for you. I'm sorry, this table right there. Bob. His desire to honor God through his prayers. I mean, if only we could do half of that. Okay. So we should continue to examine our heart because if we have a plan and the plan doesn't seem to be succeeding, what's one of the possibilities? Why is he so concerned to examine his heart? It's one of the things that could be going on. Devin? Yeah, if you're doing something with wrong motives, God's not necessarily going to bless it, right? Especially long term, okay? Um, is it a good goal to say that others might see it's not a vain thing to trust in God? I think we'd say yes. But notice his response. I was able to say I'd rejoice in God being glorified even if it meant bringing the whole plan to nothing. How often are we willing to say this would be an amazing thing to happen, but if it never happens, even if I've poured all this energy into making it happen, it's okay if that's what glorifies God. That's a hard thing to come to, right? But that was his attitude, I think, genuinely. But um, at the same time, he was convinced, and I didn't have space to put all this. He said, but I was convinced that this would honor God to do it. Bruce? Okay. Yeah, I think, I think he was making this assumption because it had taken them time to get everything established. They'd announced it, they'd mentioned it, you know, those sorts of things. They would just have people showing up, right? So I guess the parallel would be if we said, um, I don't know, if we said something like we're going to have an open house and we send out a bunch of invites and all those sorts of things and nobody shows up. We'd say, well, we did all these things that we'd expect to have resulted in people showing up. Why did nobody come? I think that's kind of where he's at. But yeah, absolutely, we should have that aspect of patience because sometimes God causes us to wait on things so that we spend more time in prayer and seeking his face, right? And, uh, you know, 
what are some things that we might take for granted, like we just assume it's going to happen, that we should probably be praying about more? Tina? Okay, food. We're going to get into that one a little bit later, actually. Yeah. Okay. What? Good air. Okay. I mean, you know, yeah. Weather. Yeah. Okay. Um, Margaret. The stability Okay. Yeah, whether that be your job or your living situation, whatever else. Norma? Okay, yeah, prayer does change us, and that's a good thing, right? Okay, yeah. Good. Any other thoughts on, yes? Right motives. Okay, right motives. Yeah, going back and examining and why am I doing this? Because we can have right motives for doing something one day and wrong motives for doing it the next day, even if it's the exact same thing, right? And quite honestly, a lot of times the thing that distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever is not always the activity, but the why we're doing the activity, right? Okay. Uh, the next little section here, he says, from May 16th up to this day, I've been confined to the house and a part of the time to my bed because of sickness. Now this affliction leaves my mind free and gives me time because I'm confined to the house. I have written over 100 pages. So my question would be, how can we be good stewards of illness, whether it's a short thing or a long-standing thing? How can we be good stewards of illness? Retta? Okay. Good. Other thoughts on this? How can we be good stewards of illness? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, is there a, is there a time like if you have the stomach flu? I don't think we're necessarily saying that's the moment to go and witness to people, right? Because you don't give it to them or that sort of thing. And sometimes there are moments where you just need a little bit of time to recuperate, right? But there's also that time kind of in, in between, right? The in-between times and the I'm getting better, but I'm not all the way there yet, where there's a lot that we could do and it's easy for us to just say, well, this is about me and I'm going to feel sorry, like Reto was saying, those sorts of things, right? Any other thoughts on this? Norma? Okay, yeah, spend time with God. Good. Rob? Like with what Devon was saying, uh, it's a time, uh, I'll say for me, in a personal example, to guide my tongue, uh, things are, how things going at work, or how you feeling, are you still sick? And it's always a chance to glorify and speak positively about God and His place and His role in our lives. I know that's easy for me to fall short on guarding one's tongue and speak, speaking positively. As opposed to maybe complaining or... Well, Sure. Whatever it might be. Okay. Good. Margaret? Okay, it gives you time to reassess and reprioritize. You have time for reflection because now you have to rest. You don't have a way of getting out and doing it. Yeah, sometimes we're so busy we don't stop and say, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing it the right way? All those kinds of things. And it gives an opportunity there. Mary, did you have something? I don't know if I saw your hand. Nope. Okay. All right. Um, a little bit later, he says, we had a prayer meeting to praise the Lord for his goodness during the past year and to ask him to continue his favor toward us. 
so this was in the context of they established an orphan house, and then I think they established a second one for younger kids. Just all the things that had happened during the course of that year, they had this prayer meeting. So my first question is, why should we thank God, not just ask him for things? Rob? Because we're, we're, we're told the, the Bible tells us to thank God. Okay. Thank so it's commanded for one. Tina? For all the things that he's done for us already. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. Good. Yeah. So, uh, because God says to, because uh, we have lots to be thankful for, grateful for. Okay, Eric. Okay. Yeah. So we can be thankful in all the circumstances of life. Okay. Good. What else? Anything else? Louise? Yeah. Okay, the story about the, the ten lepers and ten of them are healed and only one comes back to thank Jesus, right? Um, so I guess I would also say along these lines, it's somewhat of a mark of maturity we should do things for people, for our kids, for whoever, whether they thank us or not, right? But it's kind of a mark of childishness that all you ever do is get stuff and you never acknowledge it, right? Whereas part of growing up and understanding a perspective on life is acknowledging and being thankful for what people or God is doing in your life, right? And um, I think that's what we see in that story, Louise, and, and some other things too. Uh, another question, how does... Or how could recording prayers and when they're answered aid in that kind of remembrance? So he talks about doing this. He wrote down, uh, there was an earlier section of the chapter, he wrote down something that he prayed for and it wasn't fully answered until a year later. And the only ways that he knew that is because he had written it down. How could writing down what we're praying for and when God answers it help us in praising him? Bob? One of our biggest issues is our short memory. Okay. Good. Other, other thoughts on that? Yeah. If you're old or busy, you're not going to remember things, right? If you're old and busy, you're not going to remember anything, right? <laughs> right? Okay. Good. Yeah, we just, we have short memories. We need things to help us. It's not, Sometimes out of pride, we feel like it's a bad thing to have to depend on something to help us keep track of what's important, and it's not. It's better to, to use something to help us remember than it is to say, well, I'm going to remember it and then not remember any of it because we just can't, right? And yeah, sometimes we need to be less busy, but sometimes that's just how life is, right? Okay. Any other thoughts on that one? Yeah, Mary. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a great parallel, but I was going through my email and cleaning out a bunch of old drafts of emails that I had never sent, 
and it was interesting just to see different things that I had written at different points and to see, you know, at this point I thought I knew this thing and then something else happened a year or two later and I realized, wow, I didn't actually know it. But, but we see glimpses of that through looking back on records. We see God's faithfulness. We see development. We see all those sorts of things, hopefully. Okay, Bob? And if you write it to be seen, it changes it a little bit, right? But if you just write it down and then later on, you know, God uses it. I don't know that he necessarily planned that people are going to read what he wrote down, but, you know. Like the prayer box. Okay. You know, you put your prayer in there, you date it, you know, like, and you can even start it in January and come December, pull them out and see, yeah. you know, what has God done that year in your life that you prayed for. Going back, um, my lesson, uh, back on the Bible verse, one day I, I wrote down our prayer and praise report. And to look back now, it's just amazing how they all turned out. It, it, it's really great. I should just make a book of it, you know, and go back, flip through it, and see. Yeah. You know, because it, it's really, it's cool. It's, yeah. It makes you feel good to see all the things God has done in that time answering your prayers different ways them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you guys remember that Habits of Grace book that we went through. It talked about some practical things like kind of what Tina was describing and journaling, all those sorts of things. The Bible doesn't command you to journal. It doesn't command you to write down, here's the thing I prayed for and here's when it was answered. But it's not a bad thing. It's a helpful thing. And so sometimes those helpful suggestions to the extent that we don't so focus on the helpful thing that we forget the main thing, right? I'm so focused on writing everything down, I don't pray as much. That, that would be bad, right? But to the extent that it helps and supports the thing that we are required and commanded and expected and should want to do, it's a good thing, right? Um, all right, the next little part here. He's, uh, he's talking about visiting people. He says, arrangements should be made so that I may be able to visit the brethren more because an unvisited church will sooner or later become an unhealthy church. Um, any thoughts on whether you agree with that statement? And then we'll talk about some of the obstacles that he found to accomplishing this goal. Tina? Well, they, they should, within the church, they should stay strong and united. Okay. They are visited or not. Okay. You know, more visitors, the better. But they should stay strong with amongst themselves, the love, the bond, the, the sure. church family. I think he's visiting, um, he says, watching over the saints. So I think he's talking about visiting, not like visiting unbelievers, but more visiting people who are already part of the church. So why would that be important, just to clarify where he's coming from? Rob? <coughs> when I read that, I was wondering why didn't he have other people in the church helping him visit Okay. So that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's a practical reality of just based on the experience of what I did with people in 
uh, at inner city and then here, there's a, there's a reality that there's only so many people that you can keep close watch on by yourself. You need help. So that's a really good point. Okay. Um, what else? Uh, let me just read through these obstacles and maybe it'll pro uh, provide some more things to discuss here. He said, obstacles for this goal. He says, watching over the saints can help prevent backsliding as we counsel them in family, business, and spiritual matters. He said also, we want to keep up a loving and familiar communion with the people. And I think that's what you were getting at, Tina. So, uh, particular obstacles. Large number of people, there are almost 400. Distance, many live more than two miles away, which to us, wow, two miles away. Some of you, you know, that doesn't feel very far. But, if, if all you've got is the, the walking or riding a horse or something, that can be a distance. Um, the Lord's blessing on our labors. There's new people being added that need to have conversations with to help them grow in spiritual maturity. Um, there's responsibility of two churches. At first glance, it appears the work is divided, but actually the double number of meetings means nearly double the work. He says, care of a large body takes more time and more strength than a small body of believers. Uh, number six, the position in the church at large brings many brethren who travel through Bristol to see, observe what's going on. Uh, number seven, extensive correspondence must be answered every day. Number eight, physical weakness of Brother Craig and I both. Number nine, our frame of mind is not always inclined toward visiting after a trying day. One may be fit for the prayer closet, but not for visiting the saints. And number 10, much of my time is taken up by the orphan house, schools, circulation of the scriptures, aiding missionary efforts, and other work connected with the scriptural knowledge institution. He says then, we need other pastors, those whom the Lord has called, given them a pastor's hearts and gifts. And it appears wise the two churches should be united into one to reduce the number of weekly meetings. So they, he arrives at some solutions to these things, but some of it is, is delegating, training more people, multiplying the efforts, right, like Rob was pointing out. What are some other things to think about in light of the obstacles that he raises? If we agree that it's a good thing that there is a close connection between the pastor and those in the church, and as Tina's pointing out, between the people of the church and one another, how do you accomplish that goal? What are, oh, let me ask it this way, by way of personal illustration. I can accomplish it by initiating things with you all and saying, hey, Let's get together. Let's talk. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Those sorts of things, right? So there's some of the responsibility that rests on me, right? But how can you do it toward me or toward one another to accomplish what he's talking about here? Devin? Sure. Yeah, so there's going to be times when people need more visits. So just, I mean, just by way of illustration, um, there was a time period shortly after I came where the Stanleys were going through a lot of health things. I was visiting them probably every week for, I don't know if it was a year, but it was at least six months. And I haven't had to do that as much lately, but that was really important to establish a good relationship with them, right? And sometimes you need that, sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's not just about health things. Sometimes it's about struggles someone may be having. Um, but yeah, it's not just a one-way thing, right? If it's not happening, I have some responsibility to encourage you all, but I certainly can't force it, and it's not necessarily all for me to do. It's to help you be equipped to do it yourselves. Um, so what would that look like for you toward one another? You said uh, approaching one another, something like that. Devin, if we were to expand on that a little bit, what would that look like? Tina? Like we 
you know, and when they get better, they should be out there. Okay. You know, or like, um, like if you bring meals yeah. to people, you know, um, it, it's kind of nice to hear that they like it. Yes. Or they didn't like it. Or, you know, what could improve on it. Something. Yeah. You know, sure. to uh, acknowledge okay. what some, the love another yeah. person has done for you. Yeah, so that's a really good point. So if at one point you're the one who needs the help and the encouragement, don't always assume that that's always the case. Like, I'm always the one who receives. I'm never the one who gives. Right. At some point that should change, hopefully. Uh, and in connection with that, even when you're the one who's receiving the encouragement, you can still be an encouragement to someone else. And going back to the Stanleys, all, all that time with the hospital, and all the other things they were in and out of, there were a bunch of times, and I'm not, I'm not picking on them because I'm saying good things, even though they're not here, and I'm not saying they're the only ones that did this. It's just an example that came to mind. There were a bunch of times when Maggie was sick, and they were both sick, that they would say over and over again, hey, we're praying for Maggie. How's Maggie doing? So it's not a one-way thing, even when you're largely the one receiving the encouragement. Uh, I don't know. Evan, go ahead. Yeah. Robert. In what way? Yeah. Yeah, so for those of you over there who probably couldn't hear what he was saying, uh, basically the idea of what are parallels are there to what Paul did. And I think there's a lot of parallels. There were a lot of instances where Paul was unable to visit somewhere. So I think of 1 Thessalonians 2. He said, we wanted to come visit you, but Satan hindered us, so we sent Timothy to check on you. That kind of thing, right? Um, so that's part of it, is sending other people when you can't go or when there's too much for one person to do. 
part of it, as Robert was pointing out, was Paul writing all these letters that now form most of the New Testament. And so correspondence, you know, today it might be I can't necessarily go to someone's house right in this instance, but I could call that person, I could text, I could email, like some way of being in contact to, to encourage that person even if I can't be there right this moment, right? Um, trying to think what else you were saying. Basically, that it's a collective work. People need encouraged individually and also churches more broadly, all those sorts of things. Tina? Or like if you can't go visit somebody, give somebody else a jingle and see if they can. Right. You know, or just, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so if I was out of town or if I was sick or something like that, you know, my goal is to always be available, but there's instances where that might not be the case. Bob? There's something to be said, too, for the if, if you spend a lot of time encouraging or helping one person, you may not have much left to give to a bunch of other people. And so there is a time for prayer, but to the extent that there's more than one person who can do the thing that we're talking about, there can be kind of a, an overlap, and that's going to happen, as Bob's pointing out, if we cultivate that attitude of being ready for service, right? Um, he is sick again in the next chapter, and in connection with that, he says, uh, after being sick, then it was, uh, he was cold, because it was um, cold weather, not a lot of heat for a variety of reasons, and so he's just getting very discouraged. He says, I entreated the Lord that this circumstance might not rob me of the precious communion I've had with him the last three days, for this was the object at which Satan aimed. I also confessed my sin of irritability on account of the cold and sought to have my conscience cleansed through the blood of Jesus. He had mercy on me. My peace was restored. So how does Satan use everyday circumstances to promote complaint in us? You say, that never happens. No, I'm just kidding. We know that. Give me some examples. What does this look like? Yes. Okay? Yeah, our Christian life doesn't get put on hold just because we're sick, even if we feel like it, right? Okay? What else? What are some other things? How does Satan use everyday circumstances to cause us to be complaining or sinning in some way? And I'm not, to clarify, it's not always exclusively Satan persecuting you individually, but I'm saying how does that fit into his broader purpose of pulling you away from God and undermining God's work? Yes, Tina. Because right. I don't feel well. I hurt everywhere. I mean, I'm in an excruciating pain. But I, I mean, and that, that's, that's, that's not very nice. 
you know, who wants to hear it? So that raises a good question. Should we cover up the fact that we're not doing well because we feel that that would be complaining to speak honestly? Would it be complaining to speak honestly and say, I'm having a really hard day, I'm in a lot of pain? I don't think so. I think we have to at the same time acknowledge and God is helping me or like he does here, will you pray with me that I'll have a right attitude about it because it's really hard for me to do that right now? Um, so along those lines, that second question, why do we often minif minimize sinful attitudes and fail to deal with them? I was just complained a little bit. Why do we not deal with that with God that we were complaining or frustrated or not trusting him. Eric? Well, we, tend, we tend to excuse it as that, well, that's just who we are. That's our personality. Okay. So we make excuses. Bob? Also, I think it's easy to compare ourselves to others. Okay. And justify our level of whatever respectable sin it is because it's not as bad as that I don't complain as much as so-and-so, so I'm doing really well, okay? We feel justified. We feel like I deserve to complain because um, this bad thing has happened. So think about the story of Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to go where God sends him. Then he finally goes where God sends him. Then he reluctantly does what God wanted him to do. Then he sits down and waits for God to punish the people that he didn't really want to bring the message to in the first place, right? God sends him a vine. He's like, this is great. I have shade. Then God sends a worm that eats the vine. And he says, this is bad. I don't have shade and I'm baking in the heat. And God says, basically, why do you feel justified in being upset about this thing that affects just you when there's all these people that I want to show mercy on through your ministry and you can't see the compassion that you should have for them. Why do you have compassion on the worm or on the vine and on yourself but not on all these people? Sometimes if we don't deal with these little sins of complaint or things like that, God continues, I think, to make life difficult for us for a period of time to open our eyes to the larger things he's trying to accomplish in the world. And I don't, I don't mean that God says, all right, I'm, I, this person sinned by complaining, so I'm going to make his life miserable. I'm going to make her life miserable. I don't mean that. But if a good God's goal is for us to be holy, he's going to use uncomfortable, difficult, painful circumstances to accomplish that until that goal is accomplished. And that's not him being mean or vindictive. That's him being, like Hebrews 12 says, a good father disciplining his children. And so, uh, yeah, if we feel justified in sinning, there's probably a real sense in which God is going to continue to allow various trials to come into our life to give us more opportunities to recognize that we're not responding the right way, right? And you have to be careful with that. I'm not saying you have chronic pain or someone has a long-term illness or... or you're just going through the difficulties of aging exclusively because you haven't had a right attitude toward it. I'm not saying that. But in every physical trial or in every trial generally, we should always stop and say, what can I learn from this and how can I grow closer to God and what am I not doing the right way? Even if it's only one little thing and most of it is like Job, I don't deserve this. 
even if it's just one little thing that we say, God, I need to change this because of this you brought into my life, we should let God use that trial to have that work and produce patience and endurance and faith and all those things, right? Norma. We need to confess right away to God as we become aware of sin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a little bit later, they needed help um, with the work, particularly, I think, of the orphan houses. He says, My gracious Lord has not sent me help yet. In some small measure, I now understand the meaning of the phrase, how long, which frequently occurs in the prayers of the Psalms. But even now, by the grace of God, my eyes are on him only, and I believe that he will send help. And so, some of the arguments that he puts forth about needing help, he says, God, you should help me because I began the work for your glory, because you're the father of the fatherless, because I've received the children in the name of Jesus, so it's work on his behalf, in his name, uh, the, uh, number four, the faith of many of God's children has been strengthened by the work. Number five, because if God doesn't help, there's opportunity for the enemies of the faith to laugh. Because number six, if you don't provide, many people will feel justified. Well, we have to do it the wrong way we've been doing it, because if we do it the right way, it won't be helped. Uh, number seven, I can't provide in my own strength. Number eight, my fellow laborers also trust in him. Number nine, I'll have to send them out from scriptural instruction to former companions who are unbelievers if you don't help. You could prove wrong those who say God helps at first but not later on as time goes on. And then number 11, if he did not provide, how could I explain the many remarkable answers to prayer which he's given to me previously which have shown me this, this work is of God. A lot of times when we're pleading with God, our reason is because I'm asking and we don't explore it further than that. He lays out 11 reasons why God should answer his prayer. What can we learn from that? Robert? Okay, yeah, he's not trying to twist God's arm or force God to do something, but he's showing that his heart and attitude is in the right place and that these are reasons, things that are true about God and about the work that God's done in his life that are a basis for why God should say yes to his prayer. And he's not demanding that God does it instantaneously, but he's saying, God, I think that you should do this and here's why. So he's put a lot more thought into it than we tend to when God hasn't immediately answered a prayer, right? Um, what benefit do we find in feeling the weight of the psalmist's pleas? Both uh, Robert mentioned Nehemiah, Paul. You see this a lot in the Psalms. Here are the reasons, God, why you should intervene in a lot of the laments. How long? When will you answer? When will you hear us? Why do we not like to feel the weight of those sorts of questions? And, and how can we learn from those sorts of questions? 
Why don't we want to be in a place where we have to say how long? Right? Okay, maybe we think it's sinful or it's doubting, okay? Because it's uncomfortable. Because it's uncomfortable, right? Because we want an answer right away. We don't want to have to get to a point where we say how long, because if it's been five minutes and we haven't got an answer, you can't really say how long when it's been five minutes, going back to Bruce's point of patience, right? But if it's been weeks or months and you say, God, why is this still this way? It's uncomfortable. We wonder if our faith is what it should be. But the fact that godly people who came before us do this, I think, shows us that it doesn't have to be doubt or lack of faith, and that it can be a good thing that God is making us uncomfortable. But it's just... Bruce. So maybe, I think I'm, uh, I'm summarizing this accurately. Our first prayer maybe is not all that it could or should be before God, right? God doesn't answer it right away. We come at it again. And that prayer is a little bit better, more biblical, more heartfelt, more fervent. God still doesn't answer. And then the third one, you know, and God's doing something in us. Right. Teaching us perseverance, teaching us to have more pure motives for why we're asking for things? Because let's say a trial comes into your life. What's the first thing you're probably going to pray for? Take it away. goes on a little bit longer. Show me something. goes on a little bit longer. God, I want you to be glorified even if you don't take it away. Now, there's potentially a lot of steps between those, right? Take it away. Even if you don't take it away, I will serve you, right? But that's a good thing that God's doing in our lives, right? Bob, did you have something? Okay. Tina. You don't make it easy, Jesse. No. But most things that are good for us aren't easy, right? Amen. <laughs> if everything was like eating ice cream, then we would... Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I had to go there. I'm sorry. All right. Monday morning. No money came in either Saturday or yesterday. The matter has now become a solemn crisis. We called the brothers and sisters together for prayer. Despite this trial of faith, I still believe God will help us. Nothing should be purchased that we cannot pay for, and the children should never lack nourishing food and warm clothing. So, we could potentially disagree with his premises. We'll never ask for money, we'll never go into debt, all those sorts of things. But given his premises, you see where he's coming from, we're going to continue to wait and ask God for help. So first solution, we discussed what unnecessary possessions could be sold. So is our first response when a bill comes up that we're not sure how to meet, what do I not need? 
Sometimes, but sometimes it, we don't even think about that. We just say, I need to have all the things that I have right now and also enough to, t to meet this need. But in their case, they said, maybe we don't need everything that we have. And they didn't have a lot either. So there's that first thing. Then he says, one of the sisters told me not to trouble myself about her salary because she did not want any for a year. Well, that was a, a measure of commitment on this lady's part to be willing to do that, right? After prayer, one of the laborers gave me all the money he had, 16 shillings, saying it would not be right to pray if he did not give what he had. Again, sometimes we say, well, I'm going to pray, and we don't see that God could potentially be using us to meet or accomplish the goal. Then he said, enough provisions remain for today and tomorrow, but there's no money on hand to buy bread. During the day, enough money came in, and we were able to buy the usual quantity of bread and have some money left. May God be praised. We thankfully took this money out of our Father's hands as proof that he still cares for us. Again, we can argue whether we have to follow the exact same path that they did in this circumstance. But how could a situation like this illustrate more clearly than I think most of us experience it, praying, give us this day our daily bread? Or at least the attitude behind it. Tina? Dad cares more for us than he does the birds in the sky or the creatures. All right, so remember that God cares for us more than he does the, the birds and so forth. Okay. There you go. Yep. So if God cares for us and God uses these circumstances to increase our dependence on him, then that could be a good thing and part of the what it means to give us this day of daily bread. Okay, what else? Well, as you said, it's, uh, God doesn't answer prayer always through some stranger coming through the door in the hearts of his people. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Any any other thoughts on this as we wrap up? Mary. Okay. Yeah. There's this interesting balance between we should plan for the future and we can can depend on God to provide for us when we need, right? And so if the, we have to provide for the future causes us to be stingy and not generous and worried and fearful and not dependent on God, then it's potentially a bad thing. But to the extent that we don't have what we need because we've been careless or whatever else, I mean, there's that angle too, but there's just a lot of things to think about with this, right? Okay. But the main thing being depending on God, seeing his care day by day, if God can provide for the birds of the field and the animals in their dens and all those sorts of things, he's more than capable of providing for us. And so we can be confident of that whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, right? Okay. All right, let's close in prayer and then we'll head into the service. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to learn from the example of those who've gone before us. Uh, not that they've done everything perfectly and not that uh, they were without fault. In fact, there's a lot of times through here where he acknowledges Maybe I could have a wrong motive or maybe I'm sinful in approaching it this way or all those sorts of things. 
But Lord, we can learn from how you, as a faithful God, provided faithfully and how you can do the same for us. And that we need to trust you and draw closer to you. We pray that you help us to do that. In Christ's name, amen.